You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia, and I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by psycho-oncologist Elizabeth Harvey, who works with and supports cancer patients, their families, and caregivers discussing diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, recurrence, and end of life. Liz, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. For those who may not be familiar with you, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Sure. Well, first of all, I want to thank both of you for asking me to come and participate in this. I'm really thrilled to be asked to talk about something that has become my passion late in my career. I spent over 20 years in working in research in cancer drug development. And later on through serendipity, I met Dr. Jimmy Holland, who actually founded the field of psycho-oncology, and I worked with her for 10 years. She trained me when I went back and got my license. So I feel like I'm in a a very unique position of really understanding what it's like for cancer patients, what drugs they're on, what the side effects are, just what it's like navigating the cancer world. And in addition to have had the wonderful experience of being with someone who really understood how important it was to support patients through this process, to, to work with her and to get that experience. I feel very lucky and in a unique position to be able to talk to patients about this field. As a psycho-oncologist, what I do is I work with patients throughout the continuum of cancer care. I see them from diagnosis, through treatment, through, if unfortunately, recurrence, end of life, and even follow cancer members and caregivers through the bereavement process. And I also follow patients through survivorship. And, you know, it's the diagnosis and treatment of cancer really is a major life stress, as I'm sure some of you who are listening to this already know. It turns your life upside down. And in this society, the there is a lot of emphasis on the state of the art by medical treatment, but unfortunately, there's failure a lot of times to address the psychosocial problems that are associated with this illness. And I think we know now that failure to address these psychosocial problems results in needless suffering of patients and their families. It can even obstruct 
quality of life health care and potentially affect the course of the disease when patients, for one reason or another, don't follow through with treatment. We have a body of evidence now that exists that shows the deleterious effects of not receiving psychosocial support and the benefits in the quality of life of cancer patients that do. So what is psycho-oncology? Psycho-oncology is a subspecialty of oncology. It's devoted to the psychology and social care of patients and their families at all stages of the disease. Its purpose is to treat the whole patient, not just the cancer. How did this field evolve? Certainly there is a need. I mean, cancer represents a major public health issue now. And according to 2015 statistics, over a million and a half new cases were diagnosed and over a half a million deaths. That's 1,500 deaths a day. A quarter of all the deaths in the U.S. are from cancer. It's second only to cardiovascular disease. Every three minutes, one person in the U.S. is diagnosed with blood cancer. New cases of leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma represent 10% of all these cancers. And it's thought that this is going to double by the year 2050. So every time someone gets diagnosed with cancer, there are psychological difficulties, there's anxiety, depression, relationship stresses, stresses from the physical illness itself. There's social difficulties, financial pressures, disruption in school, work life, family life, getting access to care and information, and just the skills you need just to manage the illness itself. It's estimated that a third of all patients with ongoing cancer experience have significant psychosocial distress, and caregivers and family members often report even a higher level of stress. How do we get to where we are? I mean, having presented this brief overview, we can certainly understand how critical this is, but why has it taken so long for us to recognize it and actually make advances in this field? Well, it was maybe 50 years ago when you mentioned the word cancer and people immediately thought of death. There were fears of a disease at that point that nobody knew what caused it, and there weren't any treatments available for it. Patients often were not even given a diagnosis they were, that was considered cruel and inhumane. They would give up hope if they knew what they had. So patients were stigmatized, they were ashamed, they kept it a secret. And to make it even worse, patients also had fears and negative attitudes toward mental illness. And there wasn't any ability to do any research on this because basic scientists thought that anything that came from patients in terms of their personal experiences were just like touchy-feely, and there was no way social sciences had any way of dealing with it. And when, as the case with anything that people don't know very much about, there developed certain myths about cancer. For example, people had this belief about mind-body connection. You must have wanted to have cancer. You must think positive to beat your cancer, the, the tyranny of positive thinking, that somehow if you weren't positive enough, it was your fault. Depression can make your tumor grow. Stress causes cancer. So patients were made to feel responsible for their own disease and how well they did. So in the 70s, things began to change. Cancer came out of the closet. There were more cancer patients who were high profile, who revealed their diagnosis. For example, I don't know 
what the median age is of the audience listening to this. But Betty Ford, who was the wife of Gerald Ford, came out about her mastectomy. Also Happy Rockefeller, who was the wife of Nelson Rockefeller. And so people, you know, women's rights groups and um, patients' rights movements started. And there were open debates about whether you should tell a patient or not about their diagnosis. And people felt they had the right to know. And there were also a new optimism about curative treatments because there was more research going on with chemotherapy and there were positive results from that. Also, in 1977, the first department of psychiatry was formed in Sloan Kettering Institute, and that's when Jimmy Holland, who's acknowledged to be the, as she used to say, grandmother or mother of psycho-oncology, began her setting up a research department to look into to this area. So that sort of spawned um, the era of research where they figured out how they could validate tools that measured things like pain, depression, anxiety, fatigue, a lot of the common feelings that patients had. And then they could measure how effective certain interventions were for these patients. Then three big things happened in this country. There is an organization that actually comes up with guidelines for chemotherapy. And they incorporated a guideline for psychosocial care. And this included having an evaluation of distress for every cancer patient that came into the clinic. So that if they scored a level of distress, they could be referred for some psychosocial attention. Also, the Institute of Medicine, which is part of the National Academy of Sciences, did a big study in which they were looking at all of the things that cancer patients needed. And this was a multidisciplinary group, and they looked at things like information about illness, help with coping, assistance in managing illness, um, access to care, issues like that. And they came up with this conclusion, and this is really the bottom line of, of, um, of all of this, is that now psychosocial care, instead of being just a touchy-feely sideline, was now considered an integral part of care for the cancer patient, just as important as chemotherapy. And now there's an international standard in which distress is considered something to be measured along with basic things like temperature, blood pressure, pulse, respiration. It's a big step forward for the field. Right. I, I think, yeah, I think though, you know, as you know, unfortunately, today in our era of managed care, anyone who's been to cancer treatments, cancer clinics, they're busy, they wait, you know, a lot of times the psychosocial aspect can slip between the cracks. Even though they've come up with new standards, implementing them is another issue altogether. And I think one of the issues that's a problem, you know, is that it's sort of this don't ask, don't tell policy. Like for patients, I think it's really hard when you're rushed in to see the oncologist. You know, you're kind of embarrassed to bring up things that don't seem to be that important. You sort of feel like, well, maybe I'm a wimp. You know, my family's going to think I'm crazy if I need some extra support. 
these are real problems, you know, talking about it isn't going to help. And the oncologist also thinks, I don't want to open up that Pandora's box. I'll be here for hours if I ask them how they're doing. Psychological stuff doesn't really work anyway, it's touchy-feely, blah, blah. So we still have a ways to go to increase the awareness of how critical this is. Now psycho-oncology is recognized as a field, a legitimate part of oncology. We have evidence-based, which means we've done research studies that show that we have interventions in patients who have distress. It's not just a touchy-feely thing. We have clinical practice guidelines. So if someone goes in to see an oncologist, they should be screened for distress. This should be part of their experience. We can no longer view this aspect of cancer care as something separate, as like a nice to do thing, some luxury thing. This is an integral part of cancer care. And I think it's really up to all of us, patients, also oncologists, we're trying so hard to reach everyone so that they understand that this side of this particular type of support is available. And they need to speak up too and ask for what they need and know that that's not, that that's okay. I mean, I really feel, you know, and as I said, this is a passion of mine, I really feel that anybody who hears those words should have somebody there to sit down and help them, help guide them through this experience. I actually didn't realize that you were so fortunate to have known and worked with Dr. Holland. Um, I was able to uh, meet with her at one of the American Psychosocial Oncology Society meetings. Um, And she's just, she was amazing. We all miss her very dearly. But just knowing that she really started and and she was the founder of psycho-oncology and just that she started in such a time period where the thought was that emotional distress wasn't really and shouldn't be considered one of the vital signs. And she worked through all these years and now I know that it is part of the workup and the experience. But like you said, there's not as much time sometimes spent with the doctor. Yeah. And uh, we, I think we still do see this go by the wayside. But just to know that she started this at a time where nobody was really thinking about this as something that should be or could be measured. Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I'll tell you a little anecdote. You know, her husband is a world-renowned oncologist. That's what's so interesting. There was such a dynamic duo. He actually helped found the field of oncology to separate it out from regular medicine. And when she was a psychiatrist, when they were married early on in her career, and he would come home after experimenting with all of these really toxic chemotherapies, some of them, you know, were mustard gases left over from World War II. And she would, gosh, you know, what does it feel like for these patients to be getting these horrible toxic drugs? And it like implanted this little idea in her head, which led eventually to her exploring this field more. It's very interesting. Wow. And I think having him there also helped her her entree into the oncology field because oncologists were not listening. You know, she had a real uphill battle getting through to them. 
Sure, absolutely. And what happens now? Like what everybody has to go through some questions. Is there um, a specific number of questions that uh, if you indicate that you're not feeling well or that you may be a little bit depressed, is there a mandate to report? Well, it's very interesting. There is a, what's known as a stress thermometer and it has all different categories in your life and you sit down and just put a little X by different ones that are stressful and then just like in a pain vehicle you put what you think is your level of distress from 1 to 10 and if you score 4 or above that's the flag that will have you sent to talk with someone but the, the problem is, as, you, as we've talked, it's a very busy practice situation. They have enough paperwork to fill out. Sometimes they just say, not another thing I have to do. That's why it was made as simple as possible. And there's a lot of effort being made, as you probably know, through the American Psychosocial Oncology Society. They have training programs where different cl uh, clinical personnel come to be trained in distress screening and then they go back to their clinics and learn how to incorporate it. So there's a lot of work being done to try to raise the awareness of the importance and also practically teach people how to do this. And you'll see that in major cancer centers it's obviously more successful sometimes than in cancer centers that are, you know, or cancer hospitals that are away from, from the academic circles. But, uh, but a lot of progress is being made, but we have a ways to go. Right. Liz, earlier you mentioned, which I found very interesting, well firstly, thank you so much for that background about the progression of psycho-oncology. Mm -hmm. Earlier you, you mentioned it's more than just asking for blood tests. It's more than just like reading them their charts. It's having the conversation and kind of validating the fact that asking the patients how they feel is a very necessary question. Yes. I know a lot mm -hmm. of patients that we speak with, they say, I was just trying to you know, go through all the treatments and get everything done, and it wasn't mm -hmm. until after where I felt like I had just been through war. I think it's amazing to see the progression of this thought, the school of thought that to take care of the patient is to take care of the whole patient. And one yeah. of the doctors, I mean, one of sorry, one of the books that I saw written by Dr. Holland and Sheldon Lewis was the human side of cancer. And cancer is not just blood work and blood counts and conversations about you know radiation or chemotherapy. Treatment includes how are you feeling and how can we get you to feel to help you get through this process, a process that you've never experienced. And that uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you brought that up because I was <laughs> going to suggest that for patients. It's such a wonderful book for patients to read that because she covers so many aspects of what it's like to be a patient. And it's, very, it's written in a very friendly tone so that it's easily readable. And I recommend that to a lot of my patients. So, you know, I don't know if you have an opportunity to, to recommend that to, to some of your patients who participate in your activities, but I think that is really um, a wonderful asset sure. for them. The other thing I was going to mention is I'll be talking more about when we get into the experience of the cancer patient about what happens after treatment with patients. It's a very important time for them and one that's not always recognized 
as being mm -hmm. something that's difficult to deal with. Yeah, and you mentioned cancer kind of came out of the closet, is what you said earlier. Do you think it was just that notion of I need help and so regardless of how people react to it, I'm going to mention it? Or do you think there was more of an environment where people were comfortable coming out? What do you think kind of caused that, that increase of people saying, you know what, let's talk about it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's so interesting. I think it probably was a variety of factors. Mm -hmm. I think that the fact that there was beginning to be acknowledgement in the clinical arena um, that something needed to be done for these patients and some patients were asking for it and women's rights especially around the whole issue of breast cancer remember the days when women would go in to surgery and they wouldn't even be asked and they come out with a radical mastectomy I mean wow. they're, they're women just started to really you know want to be able to find out more and not be so in the dark and uh, and I think the fact that that uh, Mrs. Ford, Betty Ford, I don't know if you remember that, probably you were too young to remember that, <laughs> but it was a really big deal when she, when she came out, and it sounds like nothing now, but when she came out and openly talked about her mastectomy and what happened, it was just like amazing, but it really, you know, a lot of women who had kind of been keeping all of that under wraps and suffering in their own shame and stigma about it, could finally come out from the shadows. I think that was part of it. I think the fact that there was more news in the research arena about treatments for cancer. I think that also for women's rights for all kinds of reasons, the fact that they, and it was more women than men, the fact that they felt that they weren't given information like a diagnosis and things like that could be kept from them I think that that was also a motivating factor. It was kind of all of these things and the changing times, but it was a, it was gradual. It wasn't each of these efforts, and and this is one thing in working with Dr. Holland is she was so instrumental behind the scenes. She was on the committee at the National Academy of Sciences. She was chair of the psychosocial committee at the National Comprehensive Cancer consortium at NCCN. Behind the scenes, she was spearheading these things in gathering a group of like-minded individuals from the advocacy community. Mm -hmm. So it took a lot of networking and just consistent effort to have these changes take place. And I think, um, you know, having met Dr. Holland, that you know her, her personality. She's very non-threatening. However, She's also yes. very, <laughs> you know, when I first met her, I thought, oh, this is such a sweet little old lady, and that lasted about 30 seconds, <laughs> because she is so lovely, but she's very bright, extremely smart, very motivated, you know, a real doer, and, uh, but she knew how to handle these oncologists. Right. And and had them yeah. believe a lot of times it was their idea, not hers. She didn't her ego wasn't involved in it, but that was how she managed to, to move things forward. I think when I met her it was three or four years ago, she had more energy than I did. Well, I had um, a hard time keeping so. up with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so jumping into the experience, Liz, what is the experience of the cancer patient? 
In thinking about how to discuss this subject, it's a difficult one because there are a hundred different cancers, there are so many different treatments, there are so many different personalities that it's hard to kind of come up with a pat answer. But I think that, and one of the reasons too, to appreciate why this field was so important is that not only are there those factors, but also a cancer patient is multiple patients because they move through different parts of the disease, through the trajectory. Through It's different when they get diagnosed. It's different when they get recurrence. That can be almost more of a crisis than the initial diagnosis. It's different for survivors. It's different for people who know that there are no more treatments available. It's, you know, each of those phases of the disease are different. But there are some basic similarities that I think are true for anyone who goes through the experience. And I, I'd like to start out by kind of just reading you a few laundry lists, because I think that the audience, if they've had this experience, will recognize some of them. And then I'd like to focus on the ones that I think are the key ones that people really need to grapple with that are, that are the difficult ones. And I think also in introducing this, I think the overall concern is when these stresses interfere with the ability of the patient to cope. That's really the bottom line because what psycho-oncology is doing is helping the patients cope with all of these issues. So. I've mentioned before that there's psychological problems associated with this illness. Depression, anxiety, sadness, fear, a loss of control, confusion. Stress can result in relationship strain. Relationships that have always been there in a certain way can change. There's disruption at work, at family life. I mean, if you had a certain role in the family and you can't do it anymore, that changes the whole family dynamic. There's stress also just from the physical aspects of the cancer and the treatment itself, the side effects, especially when people usually are not used to being sick. There also is stress from existential issues, especially in the palliative stages, especially for younger patients who've never had to think about these things. And then of course, there's financial stress. Paying for all of the treatments, even co-pays, can be expensive. And especially if you're getting some of these newer drugs, they can be very expensive. So what are the symptoms of these stresses? Feeling overwhelmed by fear to the point of panic. Getting panic attacks um, is something very common. Just an overpowering sense of dread that doesn't go away. Feeling so sad that you feel sometimes it's hard to even go through treatment. Unusual irritability and anger. And sometimes just an inability to deal with the pain, fatigue, nausea, the other adverse events. And one thing that has been really, I would say, discovered in the last few years is a phenomenon called chemobrain, which was first found in women treated for breast cancer. And what it is, is kind of a fogginess of thinking. And the neurologic testing at the time really wasn't set up to 
um, diagnose this kind of change. They were, you know, these kind of tests were would find more severe neurologic changes. This was more subtle, and it especially affected women who were, you know, had young kids, for example, who were multitaskers, who were running around busy, and they found they could no longer do focus very well. It was hard to multitask, and that's a lot of that's taken a lot more seriously now, and there's more research that's going into that. And again, along with this, and in general, a difficulty in making decisions. Feeling despair, mm -hmm. hopelessness, wondering if there's a point to going on, constant thoughts about the cancer and death, trouble sleeping, different troubles eating, whether it's a notable decrease or increase in appetite, family conflicts, as I mentioned, um, issues that seem really difficult to resolve. And I think the most difficult one is that when you become sick and you can't do what you normally used to do, you can feel worthless and useless and just feeling alone. The rest of the world is just going on and here you are, no matter who is there trying to support you, you're the one who's going through this and that can be a really lonely experience. So if we look at all these symptoms. I think that one of the common ones that almost everyone feels is, and one of the most difficult things to deal with, is the uncertainty. When you get diagnosed with cancer, nobody can give you a straight answer. Will the chemotherapy work well? I don't know. It depends. You know, works for some people, doesn't work for others. Well, how will I respond to it? Well, I don't know. We have to wait and see. Some people do okay, some people don't. Well, so what will happen um, if I respond to it? Well, we don't know. We have to wait and see how you do after that. If you occur, well, what does that mean? Am I going to, you know, it's just one thing after another. Well, there's a 50% chance of this. Well, 25 of the patients, I mean, it's, you just enter this world where you really don't know what to expect. And it's very, very hard to live that every day. And that can result in anxiety, depression, I think helplessness, a sense of victimization. Not only why did it happen to me, but you know, what can I do? I have no control over any of this. And again, as I mentioned, the isolation. Some people are able to have a fighting spirit, a stoic acceptance. Some people have spiritual strength that they can accept it. Something that I'd like to say a little about is denial. I know that that kind of has a bad connotation, and actually true denial is kind of rare. I think most people these days are given information from physicians to have a sense of what's going on. But I think that some patients can choose to deny either the severity or the, the presence of this. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Living their lives without talking about it or just going on living their lives as, as if it wasn't there. And what that can actually do for some patients is it can minimize the emotional stress of the illness. It can be a relief from anxiety or depression. And clearly it can be maladaptive if it interferes with treatment, if some patients just totally go on and don't do their treatment. but. Again, I think that's something that a lot, a lot of people understand, that if that's a choice of the patient, that actually can help them. 
I think that one of the issues that can happen is that well-meaning family members or friends can try to force patients to talk about it if they don't want to. And, you know, that's a shame, and I, um, I think that patients need to have the confidence that they can handle it the way they want. There's another aspect to it, too, that's kind of interesting, is that if, you, if this is a positive thing, the patient has a sense of calm. Sometimes they, can, it's, they try really hard to avoid it and put a lot of energy into it, and that's kind of a different situation, and in that situation I think it really is good to be able to have an outlet and, and help, help people deal with it. I think another tricky emotion is anger. This is how a lot of patients cope. And again, this is a very legitimate feeling. Socially, it's not that acceptable. And I think it can be difficult for certain therapists who are not trained to deal with it because a lot of times they are the target. But I think patients should be encouraged to really work through that feeling. I mean, there's so many frustrations to being a patient. I mean, day after day, I mean, they go into a clinic, you can wait for literally several hours even to see your doctor, not to mention then you go in for your treatment, it can last all day. I mean, it's just very frustrating when you're feeling tired and sick. And so anger is something that is a realistic reaction. And sometimes it can be buried under the sadness or the depression. So it's something really for patients to feel, to kind of try to be sensitive to, because it's really a good thing to be able to let go. You mentioned earlier kind of the, the interaction between the caregiver and the patient. I know for myself, when my grandmother yeah. was diagnosed with cancer, I wanted her to tell me everything. And you're right in saying yeah. that, you know, that, that can be a shame because you don't know how the person is feeling or what they're thinking about this new found, this new life that they have been forced into. But from the caregiver side, you know, I was like, I want to know everything. I want to know how you feel. Yeah. I want to know how I can help. And yeah. that alone can be so much added stress to what's already a stressful situation. Yeah. You segued exactly into my next point. <laughs> These are really tough because yeah. obviously the family loves you and they want to do everything they can, but there are all kinds of issues. I mean, first of all, there's what's known as the conspiracy of silence. Is some families feel like, oh, I don't want to bring this up because... I don't want to, you know, upset the patient or, you know, so there can be this like walking on eggshells kind of thing. That's, that's one thing. As opposed to you say the opposite of wanting to hear, wanting to talk. And, and I think it really comes down to what does the patient need? Sometimes the patient really hasn't worked through some things. It's not easy for them to talk about it. And that's another reason why Having somebody like a therapist with experience in this field to go to where they have a space, they don't have to worry about upsetting a spouse or a family member by talking about how scared they are or how, you know, because they think if I let them know that, that's going to upset them. And likewise, for family members, sometimes it's good for them to get support because all, you know, what they're feeling and they don't want to necessarily upset the patient. So that's a very delicate balance in that relationship. Right. And emotions can get bottled up and that increases anxiety and depression. And then there's the sure. whole issue with couples 
of sexual issues as a whole nother area that, that can really be difficult for couples. And, and people, you know, in general, have different coping styles. So with all these things factored in, it's a, it's a pretty sensitive situation. And I think it's, it's, it's good for family members and the patient to kind of be aware of that and do the best they can to let the patient show the way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something my family ended up learning because it's that it's that whole idea of, okay, tell me everything. And then it's the other side of, okay, I'm going to keep talking about it so that, so that she knows that she's not alone. You know what I mean? So it was all these, yeah, yeah. these sides of it that you try to cover as a caregiver. Um, yeah. And then kind of probably a year in, we were saying, you know what, we know my grandmother, she's a vocal person and when she's ready and if she's ready, we'll, we'll kind of let her, you know, take the lead on this and, and we'll be there, you know, when she needs us. You know, we have this sort of thought that, you know, come by ah, you know, we're all going to talk right. and there'll be this great spiritual loving thing. And, and sometimes it just doesn't work that way, you know, because and it doesn't mean that people don't care and that they're not close and they're not there sharing the experience it just means that different people need different things and what you feel you need doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the patient needs or vice versa you know so mm-hmm. so it's really that's where i find the work that i've done with families and couples has been so helpful in just sorting that out right. so the other thing that i wanted to say is the existential issues I think that this is a very difficult piece of the work. That there are the patients who are dying in the last phases of the disease, and accepting the inevitability of death, dealing with death anxiety, the isolation, the ultimate aloneness that that brings, also coping with the meaning of their lives or the meaningless of their lives. Um, is a challenge. Again, the uncertain future, not knowing how it's going to go, when it's going to go, trying to maintain some kind of hope, which is possible in that situation, and going through and helping patients go through end-of-life tests. There are just certain things that people would like to do at the end of their lives and supporting them through that. I think one of the things that I find the most difficult thing, and I am always amazed at the courage of patients who are able to live what I call momentary living. It's really living in the present, and it's the courage to love and live in the face of uncertainty and death. And it really is an amazing experience and privilege to work with people in that situation. I think psycho-oncology, that the psycho-oncologist really helps a patient. And I think that the, the basic thing, or the basic objective that I have is to help patients strengthen their coping skills and acquire strategies for them to be able to deal with all the stresses that this experience entails. And that means managing challenges and changes, which are 
always happening associated with this diagnosis. It's how to handle all the different emotions that they feel with the many different aspects of the disease. It's like a roller coaster. Right. So a patient can live their lives with the best quality of life possible. And it's also learning how to communicate about cancer to people that they love, to family members, to children, to friends, to employers, their healthcare team. Like, who do you tell? How do you tell? How do you share? And I think that psycho-oncology addresses the human side of cancer. It gives psychosocial support to cancer patients. Anyone diagnosed with cancer should have the support if needed to help one cope with this experience. This support is an integral part of cancer care and it's just as important as cancer treatment. You're mentioning that you know people do go through anger, irritability, mm-hmm. and a lot of our patients are on different medications that actually um, can can exacerbate that. Like steroids, um, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. We get a lot of patients calling in about Steroid steroids. Rate. Their family members are calling in mm-hmm. asking, you know, they're a different person, what's going on? Yeah, it's very um, difficult. Yeah. And just to kind of see that you know, it could come from the stress of just the diagnosis, but it could also be a side effect of Absolutely. some of the medications Absolutely. that our patients are you know, on. And I, I think in those cases, one of the best things is being able to step back and have each party understand what is happening so that they don't get in the heat of the moment that they can say, look, it's the steroids talking, I'm going to leave you for a moment or, you know, let's have a time out, let's talk in a, you know, whatever it is that they can figure out how to handle it and depersonalize that experience because it can be so hurtful and so yeah. difficult and it's not easy. It's not. Yeah. And I also wanted to ask, because I'm one of those people that I'm a planner. I plan mm-hmm. everything. I plan, you know, more so down the line, two, three months ahead of time. And, you know, it's really hard for a planner to get diagnosed mm-hmm. with a cancer and be so sidelined and, and not be able to have that control. Yeah. Very difficult. That's the unknown. You don't know yeah. what's going to happen. You don't know how you're going to feel. But you know one thing that I think really helps. And I encourage my patients to go ahead and plan. Have something to look forward to. Even if you can't do it, to stop planning and feel like you're waiting is really even harder. And I know that that's not always possible, but just as a general thing, always to have something to look forward to, even if it's less than what you had hoped, really helps. And something we didn't touch on in great detail, but just to get your thoughts yeah. on, struggles with psychological health is not limited to you know, only cancer fighters. As we mentioned earlier, do you find that caregivers are kind of this, I guess, underserved population because they can be oh. overlooked and vulnerable to the same emotional suffering? Absolutely. And 
now what is really nice, and I know I speak because I have affiliation with Sloan Kettering, they have a whole program on the caregiver, and they have ongoing studies. Because as I briefly mentioned in the beginning, that it can be harder, and the health impact on caregivers can be sometimes worse than the patients themselves. They're standing by helplessly. Sometimes they don't know how to, you know, not only do they sometimes not know like what to say or how to handle it, but they also have the grueling task of being there to handle all the logistics, all the planning, care. You know, it, it's a really tough position to be in. And mm -hmm. I think that, that that's why I encourage in situations that I'm in with patients, I encourage caregivers to also get support if they feel like they're burning out because it's something to really keep an eye on. It's the same old adage as unless you put your oxygen mask on first, you're not going to be able to help the person next to you. And if you don't take yeah. care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of, of your loved one. And it's almost like a trickle down effect because for, again, my example being my grandmother, my mom, you know, with my mom's mom, mm -hmm. so me and my sister, we would see my mom take care of my grandmother, and then we would see mm -hmm. kind of how involved, like you said, all the logistics, and we'd want to kind yeah. of get that part and take care of that so she wasn't mm -hmm. focused on all of the, you know, all the different details in regards to her care. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my dad's looking on, and we're all trying to get involved and, you know, help as much as we yeah. can, and we kind of see it, see how it's affecting my mother, because it is her mother. Mm -hmm. And so there's very much that idea of, the caregiver and then those who are also considered caregivers but may not be as intimately involved just because the you basis of the relationship. Are. Any Bobby, bystander is like a yeah. caregiver. I mean, yeah. you, you will still be affected. Yeah. One other thing I did want to mention that also seems to be pretty common is that, and I think it comes down a lot again to this communication issue that I was talking about with the steroid rage. When, when this happens to someone, when they get go through this cancer experience, and they, many times, the person they thought would be there for them is not, because either they are unable to do it, they're afraid of it, for whatever reason, they're not there in the way the patient had hoped, and it can be extremely hurtful. And yet, somehow, somebody else comes out of the woodwork that's a total surprise, and it's kind of a mixed experience. Uh, I don't know if your patients ever talk about that, but that's something that I have found that um, I would say the majority of my patients talk about. Yeah. And I think a lot of that can be resolved by communication because it's misunderstanding or assumptions, or but it can be very painful for the patient going through the experience. For those listening who may be saying to themselves, you know what, I do need to speak with someone. I need that support. A psycho-oncologist would be extremely helpful, you know, to help me get through this time. What can they expect if they were to contact you? What does the process look like? This is the way that I look at it. Mm -hmm. Anybody who has any connection with cancer wherein somehow it is bothering them, making it hard for them to cope or whatever, I will see them. And what I do, and I'll talk to them first on the phone, what I'll do in that first initial time is I won't sit there and get out my pad and take a history and all that stuff. I just talk to them and I hear about their experience. And I get a sense of how we connect because I think one of the most important things in this work is feeling comfortable. Because if you don't feel comfortable, 
it's not going to help because the whole reason that people come is because they need a place where they really can talk about things that they can't talk about someplace else. So based on that first meeting, you know, I say to them, I don't want you to feel obligated. I don't want you to feel, you know, if you, if this is something that you think will be helpful to you, we can continue, but I will say if you want to think about it, that's fine. And we'll go from there. But that's, that's how I like to do it. I don't, I think it's very important to establish that relationship. I just wanted to ask that since now psycho-oncology is part of the whole system, does insurance cover visits to speak with someone? Is that part of the treatment team at this point? That's a very good question. I don't know the updates of the progress in bundling services, which I think is what insurance companies have been talking about, which I think that the whole area of psycho-oncology has tried very hard to make sure that we're included in that, because that's sort of like a one-time coverage for a package of cancer care. Right now, I take insurance. Many therapists do not. I believe ethically that if cancer patients have the insurance, they should be able to use it, and especially with the rise in co-pays and all the other expenses they have. I will say that I don't think it's uh, covered very adequately, but there is coverage depending on people's individual plans. Um, But I think, again, that seems to be where the field is heading, and I hope we get included in that. Yeah, I think it's important for the follow-up. And the research is there. Yeah. Yeah, the research is there. The numbers are there to show that this is... Oh, it totally is, and it's all about... It's just very difficult getting funding for this field, and it's been an uphill struggle. But again, a lot of progress is being made, and we'll hope for the future. And again, when you consider, as I mentioned in the very beginning, you know, I wanted to just mention some of those statistics. That's overwhelming how, what percentage of our society are going to be in this situation. And I think when that's the case, that does give a leverage of people speaking out for what they need. But it's, it's always a struggle. Thank you, Liz, for joining us on today's episode. We learned so much about how a cancer diagnosis really has significant effects on an individual that's not just limited to physical effects. You've done such a great job sharing how it's equally important to understand that those dealing with cancer have a great need for psychosocial support as well. And we thank individuals like yourself and Dr. Holland founder of the field of psycho-oncology for devoting your lives to making that point clear and most importantly making that point heard your work as a psycho-oncologist serves as such an invaluable resource for patients and their families and again we thank you for your work and for taking the time out of your busy day i'm sure to chat with us oh that's so nice thank you (laughs) such kind words Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.